Welcome to the Digging Deeper podcast. I'm Stacy Martin, and welcome. We are glad you're here. I am joined by our lead pastor of ministry, Mike Bowler, and we're excited you're here because today, this one, this message, I'm really excited about because we're talking about finding margin in our relationships. And this is Mike's second time on the podcast, but the first time as our lead pastor of ministry. Yes, it has. Uh, it's been quite a few months, and I, I'm excited about the new position, although, you know, anything new in life, it comes with adjustments. So I uh, have been trying to adjust things and, and get comfortable with what the future holds for our church. And I'll tell you, the more people I talk to about our, our church and the future of where we're heading, the more excited I am with what God is doing already, has done in the past, and uh, the direction we're beginning to head. I feel the exact same way. That's great. Well, I'm excited about this message because, you know, we've in this series in margins, we've looked at time, we've looked at money, and really margin, the definition we've been using is having space to respond to where God's leading. And I think we forget about that in relationships, that we yep. need to have margin. So why do you think it is, and you told this great story about being in high school, and I, I'm not going to make you go through it again, but you guys need to go and listen to the message. It is, yeah. it is so, so high school faux pas with a zipper and all uh, these people homecoming court. Yeah. You just need to listen. Yes, it, it was definitely a uh, a low moment in my high school career, but one that interestingly God has redeemed and. You know, with uh, a lot of help from others, I'm able to laugh about it now. So, and you're not so scared of that happening again that you only wear pants with elastic waistbands. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. Yes, and and my family is very thankful for that. Yes. Oh, we all are. Yes. Well, part of your story was that you were so concerned with the quantity of relationships and yep. not the quality. Why do you think all of us? I think a lot of us operate that way. You know, uh, most people, and, and this isn't true of everybody, but the majority of people tend to think that more is better. So that's true with relationships. And social media has really turned up the volume on this over the last decade of we need outward affirmation. So we create this persona, if you will, and people respond to that persona by likes or they respond to that persona by comments or by followship. And all of those things help to make us feel good about ourselves. But to get more and more of that affirmation, both via the internet, but also just in our relationships with each other, um, we tend to go very surface level with people so that we can look and go, hey, and, and you know, this is funny, it starts in like first or second grade on Valentine's Day, because you want to be the kid that everybody puts a valentine in their basket and, and you go home with all the valentines and feel good about yourself. The problem is that no human being can really have that many deep meaningful relationships. So the quantity of our relationships increases while the quality, the depth, the meaning, the, the purpose in our relationships sinks. Well, I remember you saying in this message, uh, one of the stats that you had found is that really loneliness is increasing across the board. Yes. And it's fascinating. I was talking to some friends this weekend who have children that are in their first year of college. So they've just gone away to college as freshmen, that they're two months in. And what they're saying is that their kids are surprised at how hard it is to make friends. Partly because if you think about when we were in college, mm -hmm. 
you had to leave your door open to see what was going on. You had to leave your door open to see people coming and going, yep. to figure out what people were doing, to connect, find who to go eat with in the dining hall. And now everyone keeps their door closed and it's all still social media. And you're still tethered back to your friends in high school, not even making new relationships. And I thought, gosh, that really is indicative of how we are moving as a, as a society, as a culture, when it comes to the depth of relationships. Absolutely. And we see this. It's not just social media that's pushing this. Um, it's also just the speed at which everything is moving and the expectations that we have. I, I talk to high school students and the pressure they feel, even a third grader, the pressure they feel to succeed in North American society is immense. So you've got a third grader who's sweating it out of whether they're going to pass their reading test at a five level or a four level, or if they're going to be with everybody else at the dreaded three level. Mm -hmm. And you look and go, that's just not conducive to us developing a full life. And yes, we don't want our kids not to be able to read. We want our kids to be able to read. We want our high school students to be thoughtful, intelligent uh, people. But what we don't want is to have them feel so much pressure that relationships just become a means for them to achieve all these different things mm. in life. So we become this, uh, this desire to just consume relationships at a very surface level. Because the relationships end up having a utility as opposed to deep purpose and fulfillment. Exactly. And not only that, but this is where in the, in the 1960s, they did a good bit of research on how people relate and, and they studied alcoholic families. And one of the things that they found is that oftentimes in these relationships that, that people form, there's not only this utility that is more of a modern last tenure, but, but in families where someone is struggling, where there's an active addiction, which is many families, uh, you find that the family operates around that person. So their identity, each individual person in the family takes on an identity, and there's one particular one called the codependent. This is a person that walks alongside someone who's an addict. Now, we think of addicts as, oh, those are people that wander on the streets. They're not. They're people who are in Fortune 500 companies, they're people who go to church. They're people who are in education. They're good people, just that struggle with something has taken control of their life. And this codependent comes alongside of them and gains their identity from helping that addict to, to live a normal life. Mm. So they become this uh, co-person in the addiction. And what happens is that they, you take that idea of codependency of I'm here to help you do better in life, and then the codependent applies that as they grow older and older in life to all their relationships. So then all the relationships that we're in are about me trying to be sure that you're okay. Oh, wow. So you become this person who's trying to make sure that everybody around them is all right, and you lose your identity in that. And all you become is a way for people to say, to make you feel good, is the only way they do that is by you helping them to go further in life. So you lose who you are. And this is why I said uh, in the message, the woe principle. This yes, is what I Jesus thought that was talks so about. interesting. That Jesus says that if every single person thinks well of you, if every single person thinks you're a great person, then he says, whoa, slow down. 
woe to you when all people speak well of you. In other words, if everybody's happy with you, which is how this codependent kind of lifestyle is, um, then what happens is you just lose yourself. You're not being real. That the reality is that some people are not going to like us. And that's a hard one. Because I don't know about you, but man, I want people to think I'm a good person. I want them to go, Mike, yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah, that's. And the reality is, Jesus says, is everybody's thinking that? Then you are not living a way of life that's authentic and real. You're living a way of life that you pose for everybody to make sure that their needs are met in the relationship. And that's never what God intended. I mean, you talked about this idea um, from Proverbs of having a God-shaped life. Yep. What is that? How does having a God-shaped life connect to how we have relationships? So there are a couple of things that really do tear at the fiber, if you will, of relationships being meaningful and deep. One is that, that what you meant, that surface kind of relationship where we just get so overwhelmed with the numbers of relationships and those relationships oftentimes uh, become codependent or, or we're just, we lose ourselves in it and everybody needs to be um, happy with us. So we lose ourselves in making everybody happy instead of recognizing that, you know what, a relationship is about give and take. It's about honesty. And then the third way is this, this God shaped of recognizing that what many people will do, and this is, you see this happen um, a lot with, I, I mentioned high school students being stressed out because they're trying to achieve that carries into college, into young adulthood, into uh, middle adulthood, where you spend all of your time trying to achieve. So what the, Proverbs says is that the God-shaped life is like a flourishing tree, but the life devoted to stuff says it's dead. In other words, we spend so much time uh, seeking achievement, seeking approval, seeking success, that our life becomes dead because all these things won't give us life. All these things, you know, uh, the the new car, the new house, there's this really interesting thing. If you talk with real estate agents and there's this phenomenon that happens that a lot of people, not a majority, of course, but it is a trend within real estate that you will have a couple buy a house and then divorce within months of buying the house. The couple's been struggling for a long time. But the phenomenon is they think that this new thing is going to really help. So the new house, the swimming pool, the fill in the blank, whatever it is, they're going to get that and then everything's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And what they find is that thing is dead. That uh, life can't, uh, a house can't bring a marriage back to life. So they move into this great house and find out all their problems came with them, all wow. their difficulties, all their, and their, and they end up divorcing because they haven't really found that the deep, meaningful relationship is about them working together. Well, I was going to say, there's something about that idea of mutual submission. And you talked about that yep. from Ephesians 5. And it's funny, before I was really probably walking with the Lord, I would hear that voice and say, oh, no, no, stick it to the man. <laughs> like, I, I, submission, like, submission seems like you are losing your identity. But really, I think when you talk about the codependency and even things like you were saying with the, the house and, and replacing relationships with stuff, there's something about that idea of mutual submission that is key to having some sort of depth of relationship. Because I think with codependency, I think, especially as a mom, you can get into this place where you're constantly pouring out yeah. and you expect those relationships to fulfill you. But we never give we never give those other relationships a chance to 
to give back to us because we just keep pouring and pouring and pouring. Yep. Yeah, it is definitely, uh, I, I think that for most of us, this idea of giving up part of ourselves in a relationship, and this is where relationships are hard because for some people, uh, that is all they do is they give up in a relationship. That, that is codependency, if you will, where you just lose your identity in it and all you are uh, in the end is just uh, a way for other people to feel good about themselves. Mm -hmm. but, but the other side of that, and this is what happens um, it, for, for many people, the idea of actually laying down my need that I expect the relationship in the end to be all about what I want. I mean, because, you know, I, I, I am happy in this relationship, whatever it is, a friend or whatever, and, and the way to make me happy is to do what I want. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, right? Yes. So you think the more I get out of this relationship, the more this relationship gives me what I want, the better I'm going to feel. But that really isn't the case. And I see this in pre-married couples because you're right. Uh, when I talk to couples about that first, it is so funny to watch young couples because I'll have them read it. And they, uh, you know, there's like a guy and a girl and they're sitting there and there and I have them read this and you can see at the end of the verse, the girl is going, this guy, this pastor, he just has no earthly idea how relationships work. He is work. so out of touch. That's exactly So out of right. touch. The guy on the other hand is like, this guy is brilliant. We need to spend much more time with him in premarital counseling because he is brilliant. That's until we talk about the idea that in these verses in a, a book called Ephesians, it's in the fifth chapter, God's talking about the way that people relate. It's about meeting the most basic human needs. So this is what I'll do. I'll say to the couple, I'll say, hey, so uh, tell me what it is that is the most basic human need that a husband and a wife meet in each other. You know, what, what is a guy's most, what is a girl's most basic human need? And the guy will go, uh, um, uh, to be loved. Like he came up with that, like it was something original for him. And I'm like, well, okay, but let's go a little deeper. And I'll say, here's what I think most wives want. They want to feel like that their husband adores them that he has eyes for no one else, that when she walks into a room, her husband is filled with this sense of love and devotion and admiration for her. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I meant, that's what yeah. I meant. And the, and the <laughs> wife's like, that's, do that, do what he just said. I'm like, that's what, when Paul talks about husbands love your wives, that's what he's talking about, that's the kind of love, it's not just a, a fun love, it is a fun love, but it's also a deep love of devotion for your partner. Then I'll reverse it around and I'll say, what do you think your husband wants to the wife? And the wife, will, or the fiance will go, oh, he wants to be loved. I'm like, is that true? And he's like, well, yeah. I'm like, yeah. So, so you're telling me that, you know, you want to go home at the end of a hard day. You want, you know, to put on a little Kenny G and have her <laughs> strong arms take care of you. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, how about Is it this? just the Kenny G part that, that he doesn't yeah. want, or is it the whole package? <laughs> so I'll say, all right, here's the deal. Um, here's what I think he wants. And I'll say, he ain't going to tell you this because he's embarrassed to tell you this, but here's what I think his deepest need is, to be the biggest, baddest caveman out there. He wants to kill the wildebeest, drag that thing home, and he wants you to look around the cul-de-sac and go, there is no man that comes close That's to you. That's my man. That's, That's my man. And you can see 
his heart swells three sizes when I say that. I'm like, this is what it means to submit to one another. You see, you're going to do what you want, so you're going to try to love each other by, you know, loving him, but really what he wants is respect. That's what submission in this verse really means. It means meeting that need of respect. And for wives, it means adoring her, thinking and conveying ways to her that she's the most wonderful person in the world. That's how relationships work. It's when we give up our right to get what we want out of the relationship and we give. You know, you hear this uh, marriages, for example, are 50-50. There's n that's not true at all. Marriages are 100%, 100%. You gotta be all in. It's all the not time. all the time. And there are times where that you're just not. And it's not that you don't love your spouse. It's that the kids are going through a hard season. Uh, maybe it's hard at work. Maybe you're just exhausted and tired from everything. And that's when marriage, for example, or a friendship gets really good because you begin to have to submit and give to the relationship when you aren't guaranteed of getting. And you know, this is one of the things that's the most convicting thing for me is when I thought, when have I given to someone with the realization that they can never give back to me? Mm. Nothing, they cannot yeah. give back to me. And you know what, I, I, it's really sad, but I don't do that very often. I don't think any of us do because I think that requires a level of vulnerability that none of us are really comfortable with. Yeah. You know, and vulnerability is such a buzz word now. You know, Brene Brown talks about it a lot. She's got this TED talk mm -hmm. about vulnerability and and there's something about that concept that feels so foreign to us. How how do you feel like vulnerability plays in these relationships? Cuz I think, you know, we talk about re all with relationships being superficial and that the Lord really intended us to have these deep, intentional relationships. Yep. It's modeled in the trilogy, the trying, trying God. Um, right. It's modeled in Adam and Eve, but we kind of like live on the surface level. Mm -hmm. How do you feel like vulnerability plays out for relationships? Well, let me talk about men. For I, I've done a lot of work over the years with men, and uh, you know, we are, I, I have joked that men uh, struggle with emotional constipation. <laughs> That we uh, we tend to really get things just all bottled up and backed up emotionally, and and it can be uh, really detrimental at times to who we are as human beings. Because the reality is, yes, men are different than women, but we are no less relational. We're just relational in a different way. That's so, so good. So this is one of the things that has it, that I think at times some very well-meaning people uh, in the '60s and '70s. I uh, came up with the idea that the education system needed to treat everybody exactly the same because it was going to be fair. And I completely understand what got them to that point. But here's what happened. We, we kind of stopped in that process letting boys be boys. So what we started to do was just let boys uh, insist that boys needed to be like girls oftentimes, and needed to sit still, needed to, and with that advent of, of that type of education, oftentimes uh, boys get the idea that being rambunctious, being loud, being assertive, those are all bad things. Mm -hmm. So they stuff all that down and they start doing it because they want to please their teacher, they want to please their parents, they want to get good grades. I mean, almost every kid wants to do that. So boys emerge into early manhood with the idea that they need to hide who they really are. Wow. 
And when they come into that idea of hiding who they really are, uh, it begins to be this, I need to be somebody else. And I need to project this idea to other people. And what happens when they're around other men is it means I need to always be strong. I need to always, and, and men have been doing this long before the education system uh, has, has shifted uh, in the 60s and 70s, but, but that has laid this foundation, uh, or a foundation, for men to begin to uh, act in ways that just aren't conducive to the way they're built. Now, that's not to say that men should just be uh, ugly and aggressive and angry and hurtful. Absolutely shouldn't be that way. But men need to recognize that we don't need to hide. We need to learn how to be the best of what it means to be a man, which means being respectful and honoring to women. It means being who we are and, and recognizing that engaging our emotions is okay, but also engaging them in a uniquely masculine way. So a man is not gonna go home and have a big cry. He just, I mean, there are probably a few who do, uh, most are not going to go home and just throw themselves on the bed and have a big cry. That's not who they, that's not how men are. But men need to learn how to recognize that it is okay at times to express their emotion. So what happens with men if they don't learn how to express things like sadness or whatever in relationships and they don't learn how to, and, and it's not okay in the relationship to be uniquely feminine and uniquely male, this is, or, or it, men to just be uh, uniquely male together as they're relating as buddies and, and friends, then what happens is that men push all this down and then they just spew it out mm -hmm. at moments that are real ugly yeah and, and so this is one of the reasons and I don't want to make it too simple but it's one of the reasons why the statistics on things uh, like violence are, are so tilted towards men it's not because men shouldn't be uh, who they God created them to be but it's that they've actually suppressed a lot of that and then it just comes out in all these ugly ways yeah. so it's trying the best for, for men, for example, the best that men can do in relationships is to try to be authentic in those relationships and to be authentically male and to be okay with that. Yeah. And as our society, um, I think we need to embrace that all people are, and, and you know, men have some feminine characteristics and women have some masculine characteristics. And those things shouldn't keep us from each other. We should embrace those, but it really is important for us as a society to begin to recognize that asking boys very early on to not run around in a, you know, or not be loud or not be, is a, I, there's this psychologist who says that one of the best things that a mom can do for her boys at least once a week, he says, is to yell, get out of the house and stay out until dinner. Well, then I'm doing something right. Because I've awesome. got two boys, and but you're right. The world is is built, especially for boys, to to not be all the things they are. Yep. But it's interesting. I think even with women, there's something about that that term emotional constipation cracks me up. But it's so accurate because yeah. you do you just stuff and stuff and stuff. Um, and I'm the same way until there is something that just puts me over. And it's yep. but mine probably doesn't come from a systemic thing, like you said with boys. Mm -hmm. There's something about my wiring, and it's interesting, a lot of my girlfriends and I talk about this too, where you feel like you have to be all things to all people, but you also, you can't figure out who your safe places are. Mm. Like, where can I, where can I be vulnerable in a way that is safe so that we can actually build that deep relationship? 
you know, because there have been there are times when you know you let people in mm -hmm. and you show that side and they don't honor it or they abuse it or they yeah. exploit it, and then you're like, well, this is why I don't do this. Yeah, that is so true, and it is I. I think that's true for men and women. Mm -hmm. uh, women, my, my wife and I laugh that uh, she says women are more emotionally sophisticated than men. <laughs> and I think there's real wisdom there that that is one of the gifts that God has given to women is the ability to understand some of the complexities of relationships. A psychologist, a friend of mine says, if you want to know how marriage is doing, ask the wife. Mm. He said, uh, husbands aren't uh, good husbands, not oblivious husbands who don't care, but, but I mean, true husbands who love their wives. We just don't understand the complexity of relationships, particularly the emotions, the way that women do. And uh, I think one of the things for many women, the vulnerability of having been hurt in the past. Mm. And again, this can be true of men, but it is one of the things that keeps us away because we come into relationships with these past pains. Mm -hmm. And when we enter into That was into such those, a good example of you ch bringing those chains out. Yeah. Oh gosh, that was good. Well, and, and that's how we are. It's, you know, we were, we were hurt as a child because our dad was too aggressive and too angry in our home. So it, it hurt our heart. So that's a chain we bring in. And then we become really sensitive whenever our spouse says something because we, we have that hurt and pain that and it PTSD. taps into that. Yeah. yeah. So it taps into that. And we're like, oh. And then, you know, we have a boss who's who was unfair when we, you know, first graduated college and and she was just completely ridiculous with expectations and, and made us feel ashamed when we didn't perform in the workplace. And and then we haven't, you know, so you pile on all of these hurts and pain. We come to relationships and they are, they're like chains around us. And we can't embrace somebody when we're all bound up with these chains. So one of the things we have to do is we have to start to forgive people mm -hmm. because that is what causes the emotional vulnerability to go very deep. It's how we can be vulnerable is when we feel safe and we feel safe when we either uh, have resolved issues in the past, like this forgiveness where we've said, you know what, my parents weren't perfect. And yes, I need to look at this. Uh, I, I can't tell you how many people I've had write to parents who passed away, who hurt them. Mm -hmm. And I've had them write this letter to them uh, that says, dear dad, you hurt me by, and they just, pour out their heart and it's all this stuff that you know people think oh that's silly they need to go over it they haven't gotten over it they've just shoved it down yeah and it's carried with them into every relationship and they'll say you know i'm and they'll pour out their heart i'm you hurt me you did all this and then they'll get to the part where they say but i forgive you mm. i don't hold anything over you anymore i'm letting you go free and in you're going free i'm now free wow I have seen men, particularly, um, and, and women, but I've worked mostly with men, um, their lives have changed. Their marriages have changed. Their ability to deal with conflict at work has changed because they're not all bound up with all this stuff from the past 20 years. They, they've let go of that. So it is possible, it is really possible with the Christian faith when we recognize that we are completely forgiven by God. He doesn't look at us and go, because I think so many people think that God looks at them with this kind of mild disdain. Like, I forgive you, but I still haven't erased it. Exactly. Like, I still remember all the things that you did. Yes, because we remember relationships we've been in mm -hmm. where people have treated us that way. Mm -hmm. You know, forgive, but don't forget. 
Yep. So it's, I forgive you, but in a month from now, when you do this again, or a year from now, I'm going to bring up what you did in the past. Yep. So. But God doesn't do that. No, God doesn't do that at all. God doesn't look at us and shake his head and go, come on, you can do better. Come on, next time, this is the last time I'll forgive. One more time, you're in timeout. Yep. Nothing like that. God has from the very foundations of the earth, we're told, known every part of our life. And that Jesus went and, and paid a price for it, that he took all that pain, all that hurt, all that shame, all that sin, and once for all, paid the price for that, cleared the slate for us. So the one who created everything in the world, the one who loves us, that one, we live at complete peace with. And he says, and because of that, you can forgive other people. I oftentimes hear those verses in the Bible because Jesus says this a couple of times where he's like, you know, forgive as you've been forgiven. And, and he says it in different ways. And I always feel guilty about that. Oh. And I don't think he wants us to feel guilty. I think he's saying you really can forgive people because you've been forgiven. If I hadn't forgiven you, there's no way you could forgive me. Because you would not have a model for it. Exactly. Well, so if somebody's listening today and they say, you know, I, I so desire to have these deep relationships. I, I want to have, I don't need a ton of friends. But I'd like to have a few solid friends. I want to be known. I want to know others. I want to have this deep, meaningful relationship. Is the first step then to evaluate what chains they may be bringing around? Because I think some of us, and I can speak for example, I feel like I'm, you know, you operate the same way for years and years and years, and you don't realize you probably do have some chains that you've been dragging around. So is the first step to try to evaluate what those chains are and then move into the forgiveness place? So I'd say with forgiveness, that is the first step. What I would back up with is um, we're on such a treadmill and the margin in our life is so thin that my guess is if you don't have the depth of relationship that you want with uh, you know, a few good friends, uh, with some folks who you can really be authentic and real with and vulnerable with, my guess is it's because day after day after day after day, you are just getting up and running on the treadmill, thing after thing after thing. Now, there are seasons in life that are just going to be more that way. So, you know, there are just there's times that you just can't do a whole lot about some of that. But I would say the first step is beginning to identify what are the ways that I can back up from trying to manage all of this stuff. Where, where can I create some space? So it's starting to go, you know what? Um, I don't really need to post every 30 minutes on Instagram. I'm going to back off and I'll do once a week kind of thing. Or I don't need to, and fill in the blank, it's different for everybody, but trying to create a, a pocket of space. Because the second thing is to begin to look at and to maybe go to a person who you are close to. Um, or, you know, honestly, you create a little space and you'll be amazed what comes up. It's, mm -hmm. it's actually, there's a Christian theologian, his name is Henry Nowen, and he says that we uh, operate in North American society much like our lives are a shipwreck. And he says, we are just, it's like our lives have hit an iceberg. The, the ship has gone down and we are flailing in the ocean just trying to stay alive. And he said, that's all the noise and the busyness and the chaos. And he says, it's that, it's just that chaos. So you think about like the Titanic scene mm. of just the utter chaos. Grasping of of for that. whatever's floating by. Yes. Trying to keep our head above water. Just got to keep my head above water. And he said, but if you'll create a little bit of space in your life, 
it will bring, and this is the bad news, he says first it's going to bring some really unsettledness. Almost, he says, like a terror because we're not used to being quiet for even five or ten minutes. Mm. Most of us, the idea of silence for five minutes it is deafening to us. Mm -hmm. It's not a place of, of joy and, and a space that we want to be in and, and of depth. But after a little while, after doing it a few times, that little bit of space can begin to bring up, and you can begin to get begin to get in touch with, hey, you know what? I do recognize that I always react when my friend says this, mm. when I'm I'm way oversensitive with whatever. Then I'd go to a, a friend, a spouse, and say, tell me what you see. Mm. Now that's pretty scary. Yeah, talk about vulnerability. Tell me what you see. Do do I get angry? Do I withdraw? Am I hard to connect with? And, and take some time with that, because my guess is they'll point out a few things that'll help you grow a little deeper to where you can begin to get in touch with, hey, what, who do I need to forgive? Now, there's some people probably listening to the podcast who are like, I know exactly who I need to forgive. Yeah. I know exactly who it is. I know when it happened, and it was awful, and it was wrong. And I am sure that if they shared that with us, we would both go, that is awful and wrong. Yep. Let's go get that person. Don't you dare forgive them. <laughs> Don't you dare. They, they are wrong. They need justice. You know, we go get them. Grab the pitchforks. We're going to get yep. them. We're letting air out of the child. That's exactly. <laughs> but here's the thing. Um, justice doesn't bring freedom. Mm -mm. Now, our society has to operate with laws. We, we'd be in utter chaos if we didn't. But what really brings peace in our life? What brings deep emotional connection? That that's forgiveness. So it's beginning to go uh, for these folks who know exactly what happened. That person will never deserve your forgiveness. They will never earn that. But you will stay bound in those chains if you don't begin to forgive. And here's what psychologists say. Um, one of the major components to really forgive, and this is kind of weird, um, empathy. Mm. Empathy, they say, is one of the main components. It's not agreement. You don't go, well, I know why my spouse cheated on me. I, I have this deep emotional connection with No, but they said it's understanding parts of what might drive someone to do something really wrong. Because there are a lot of good people who do some wrong things, some really bad things, and they do it. Um, for all kinds of reasons. And the more you can understand, not agree, not affirm their wrong action or the reasons they did it, but to appreciate how this person might have done something wrong because whatever the reason is. Mm -hmm. Say that really helps with the quality of forgiveness. Well, it feels like empathy could play a role in that mutual submission too. Yep. You know, because without, it's hard to submit to someone if you can't find that empathy for them. I mean, I think about that in my marriage relationship. Yep. It can be hard for me to submit to Mike if I can't empathize with where he's coming from or the need that he has or whatever it may be. That's exactly right, that we, uh, to give up what I want in the relationship requires me to understand, one, what, what the spouse, for example, or what a friend needs. Uh, this is one of the things that oftentimes spouses don't do, even friends don't do, is they don't ask things like, hey, what do you need? Now, I think sometimes it's because we are so stressed and there's no margin that we're scared to ask that question because we know they're going to answer it and then our ability to meet that need. So it's creating a little bit of space and then asking that question, what do you need? And letting them respond to that in a way that we can begin to uh, understand 
to empathize and then to submit our needs in the relationship to theirs. Well, what I love about this message and how it's wrapping up this series is that in October, we are jumping into a new series called The Art of Neighboring. And to talk about having margin in your relationships and then finding margin just to know your neighbors. That's the the interesting construct of this new series is that, you know, getting to know your neighbors is the very first basic step, like knowing their names and then finding out as you go on, what are your needs? What do you need from me in a relationship? So I appreciate you wrapping up this series for us and and getting us to a place where we can start looking at our neighbors with with empathetic eyes and with eyes that desire to have intentionality in our relationships. Uh, would you pray for us? Would you pray for the people listening who are de- really desiring deep, intentional relationships? You bet. Great. Thanks, Mike. So, Heavenly Father, relationships are, they are just hard. And our lives are so full. There's so much happening. Uh, many of us feel so stressed, so pushed, so much. And, and yet, with all that, we feel this aloneness which makes us sometimes even feel guilty. And and God, we know, one, that we are not alone. You tell us that through your son that we are never alone. So we thank you that our feeling of aloneness can betray the reality of your presence with us. But you also gave us each other because you uh, intended for us to be as you are, God, in relationship. You show us that as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from the beginning of time, always relating, and that you desire for us to be in relationships. So I pray for those who um, who have a surface relationship because they've just tried to have everybody like them, and they've just tried to, to make so many relationships uh, the reality of, of showing them who they are, that, that they want those relationships to to affirm who they are. So I pray for, for freedom for them, that, that we would slowly, all of us, would begin to, to not need everybody to affirm who we are and that we would let you do that. And for those who are struggling for, with forgiveness, God, I pray that Jesus, as they spend time with you, that they would be able to let go of those past hurts and pains because you have completely forgiven us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. All right. Great being with you. It's good being with you. Join us next week as we kick off the art of neighboring. It's going to be an exciting time to really figure out how can we love people well and make a difference in our community. So it's going to be an exciting time to be together. Have a great week.